from Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries. This is the Gary Talks About God podcast. Matthew 27. Matthew 27. We're going to be down in verse 24 in just a couple minutes to verse 50. And since we're skipping ahead, let me bring you up to speed on where we are in the Passion Week. Um, last time we left Jesus and the disciples at the Lord's Supper. After the Lord's Supper, they leave and they head uh, out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And as they are heading out there, uh, they, they are walking to a, a plot. Uh, the Garden of Gethsemane is a, a plot on the Mount of Olives which is on the eastward side of Jerusalem. Now, fun fact, during the Passover, the city limits of Jerusalem was expanded to allow all the pilgrims who came in to be in Jerusalem proper for the Passover. So when Jesus leaves and goes to the Garden of Gethsemane when he's on the Mount of Olives, he never actually leaves the city. The Passover lamb never leaves the city. And in fact, from the Mount of Olives, if they turned and looked westward, they would look right on the temple. Uh, and I just find that interesting. The Passover lamb always stayed right near the temple uh, at, at this Passover. He's out there. He prays in the garden. The disciples fell asleep, right? They keep falling asleep. They can't pray. Judas comes with the arresting mob of chief, chief priests, elders, temple guards. They, they arrest Jesus. And because he was Jewish, they don't have the ability under Roman authority to crucify him. So there's a Jewish trial, there's a Roman trial where he goes uh, to appear before Pilate, and Pilate sends him to Herod, and then Herod sends him back to Pilate. And now all this is happening, the crowd is growing more and more restless. And now we're going to pick up the story in verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governors took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and took the reed, and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, and put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews." Then the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So all the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. 
He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he desires for him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This morning we are going to examine the crucifixion. We're going to look at all that Jesus bore while he was on the cross. 1 Peter 2, verse 22, actually verse 21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This morning, we need to understand that Jesus suffered on the cross. And he suffered many ways on the cross. And this morning, I want us to look at four areas that he suffered. And the first one, of course, is he suffered physically. Jesus bore the pain of the cross. We look at these points this morning, and in each one, I, I should say, you need to put in totally, completely. It's not like he endured some pain. He endured complete and total pain while he was on the cross. First of all, physically, right? But by this time in, in the verses, Jesus has, has been awake all night. If you try to go through the Gospels and, uh, and put all the times together, it's at least 24 hours, maybe a little bit closer to 30. And at this point, he is just completely exhausted. How many of y'all have, for some reason or not, been up all night and, and you stayed awake all night for whatever reason, a sick child or you were in high school or you were on a vacation or, or, or something, and then you hit like that, that wall, right? You, you know that wall where it's just like, it just, it just, it just hurts, it just, just everything hurts. Jesus is feeling that too. He's, he's feeling all that pain of just his body being awake that long. And it's important to recognize that because it's in that condition then that the Romans are going to take and torture him. And, there, and there's really no other word to use. He was tortured. right? Verse 26 said that he was scourged which means he was beaten with whips that would contain sharp objects at the end designed to, to remove the skin and the flesh and the muscle. Scourging itself could bring death. right? I mean, when you are beaten like that, to be able to survive, to even be able to get up and walk again, is, is, is amazing. 
But he's scourged and he bears the pain of that scourging. We're told that they take a crown of thorns and, 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 and push it on his head. And, and I've seen people try to figure out what kind of thorns was it, right? And you'll see small thorns and you'll see large thorns. Well, in my ongoing brush cleaning project, what I can tell you is small or large, they still hurt. Especially if they're dry. I don't know how they get sharper when they dry, but when they dry out, they get sharper and they hurt worse. And so they take this crown of thorns and, and they, they, they put it on his head. And, and you know the soldiers didn't just walk up and gently place it down. They walk over there and they push it down on his head. And you can feel the pain just radiating. He can feel the pain radiating through his body. Verse 32, he's, he's told to carry the cross. All right, he's been scourged. He's had the cross or, or the thorn put on his hands. He's been up all night. And now, hey, Jesus, you got to carry the cross beam. All right, I know sometimes we see people carrying the entire cross. It's probably just the cross beam. I don't even think some of the strongest people could carry the, the entire cross. But it was another way to bring shame on him, but also another way to endure physical punishment because his, his skin is ripped. His, he's bleeding profusely. And on top of that, an old rugged cross because you know they didn't sand it down and get out some 500 grit sandpaper to make it feel all nice and smooth, right? It's a rugged, it, it, it's like a, a crossroad or railroad tie, right? Those things are splinterly and hard. And, you know, that's, that's on his, his, his back and he's, he's made to carry it. And at this point, his, his strength is so zapped, he, he can't carry it, right? He falls down. It says they compel a man by the name of Simon to, to carry the cross. Have you noticed we've been introduced to three Simons in the past couple chapters? Two who were loyal and one who should have been who wasn't. I'll just let you think on that, and that doesn't count against my sermon time. That was free. All right, so he, he, he can't, even, can't even walk. And if that's not bad enough, that, that's bad enough. Does, does anybody want to go through that? I, I wouldn't. Verse 35, they crucified him. I, I mean, it's just, it's just so casually mentioned. He, he, he's crucified. Now, crucifixion back then would have occurred one of two ways. They would have either tied, their per, tied the person's arms to the beams, or they would have nailed, put spikes through his hands. Now, I know you know this. Which one was it? They put spikes through his hands. How do we know that? This is, this is a Bible trivia question. How do we know that? We know it because of Thomas. That's how we know it. Because Thomas says, unless I see his hands, the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, I will not believe. We don't know it. It's not recorded in any of the accounts of the actual crucifixion. It's Thomas afterwards that tells us that. Gold star for Greg. This is the pain that he is enduring. And then they come in verse 34 and it says, He's offered wine mixed with gall, which is the fulfillment of Psalm 69, 12. And what they were doing is, is this wine basically would have like a narcotic and numbing effect on, on Jesus. I mean, it's not going to take away all the pain, but they're going to try to give the prisoner a little bit. And, you know, this may have been other people. Uh, the text reads like it was the soldiers, but not sure if that is accurate or not. 
just so he can't feel the pain as much <laughs> when the nails go through your hands. But what does Jesus do? When they, when they offer him that, we see in verse 34 that they offer it to him. And what does he do? He says, no, he, 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 doesn't, he doesn't take it. He would not drink it. I would have. Right? I mean, keep, keep feeding it to me. Keep giving it to me. If it knocks me out before I go to the cross, that's fine with me too. Come on. You got it anymore. I, hey, take that away from him. Bring it up. I want his too. Jesus says no. He's determined to go to the cross in full consciousness. He is determined to go to the cross so that every pain receptor sends pain signals to the brain. He is not going to dull his senses at the cross. Now, we didn't talk about this, but in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's praying, he's sitting there and he's praying to, to God, the Father, and he says what? God, if you can take what? This cup away from me. In the Old Testament, the cup is a picture of God's judgment. In, in the Garden, he says, Father, if you can take this, this cup away from me, do so, but not my will, but yours be done. And God didn't take the cup away. That was God's plan. He gets to the cross and he's offered another cup that would numb him from the pain and he refuses to drink from the cup that would dull his senses, instead choosing to experience the full force of the execution of being crucified and drinking from the cup that God had ordained him to drink from. He bore the, the, the physical suffering on the cross. And He did that for me and for you. He also bore the shame of the cross. The shame of the cross. You can put this under emotional suffering. The crowd, the soldiers, the priests, the scribes, the people lined up on the streets, everyone wanted to do as much as they could to bring shame on Jesus. Right? I mean, I'm not trying to sound flippant, but it's like it's not bad enough that He's being crucified. <laughs> To be crucified was a shameful act in and of itself, but they're like, that's not enough. We've got to make him feel bad before he goes to the cross to die. Like, well, okay. They, they, they wanted more. They wanted more. They were going to heap shame and shame and shame and shame on them, on, on Jesus. One of the ways they did this in verse 28, it says that they came and, and, and they, they took off all his clothes. So he's standing there naked before everyone. That was a way that, that armies would shame the, the people that they had conquered, would be to strip them of their clothes. Right? And we know this is true. Right? We also know in, in Genesis 2, in the garden, it said the very last thing. You know what the last sentence of chapter 2 is right before the fall in Genesis 3.1? They were naked, and they were not, what? Ashamed. And then after the fall, being naked, there is, there is a sense of shame with it. And so they stripped him of his clothes to allow him to feel that shame that people would feel as they have been conquered by an invading army. And then it tells us that they draped a robe over him, crown on his head, a hand, a little twig 
with great fanfare. We're, we're going to shame you by pretending that you really are the king of the Jews. Hell, king of the Jews. I mean, and can, can you hear the mocking voice? You know, sitting there laughing, kind of elbow. <laughs> Did you hear what I said? I said king of the Jews. Look at him. Does he look like a king? Hey, hey, Israel, does this, does this look like your king? Look at him. Look at this little reed that he's holding up. Hey, y'all want your king? Ah, oh, king of the Jews. Let me bow down to the king of the Jews. Right? You, you, can just, you can just hear the shame. They take him to the cross. And, and one of these really weird things, I, I don't quite understand. I don't know if you caught it. Right? But in verse 34, it says that they stripped him and, and, and took off his clothes, right? And, and then it says, after they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his clothes back on him. And then they took him out to crucify him where they took his clothes off again. I, I don't quite understand why they made him put his clothes on the, the, the second time. I, I, don't, I don't get that. But they take him to be crucified and there they, they, they strip him again. He was, he was crucified naked. Now I know all the pictures you've seen of Jesus crucified, they put the loincloth on him and I'm, I'm good with that. That is not accurate. He would have hung from the robe naked again to, for the nakedness and the shame uh, uh, to be there. And then once again, the sign, verse 37, this is king of the Jews. Let's, let's shame him a little bit more. It's ironic, though, that in that sign, the, the Romans quite unwittingly admit to who he is. Right, we know from, uh, I believe it's John. They say, no, no, no. Say, say he pretended to be. Say, say that he claimed to be. And the Romans are like, no, he he is. But even then, they're they're still mocking him because the audience is going to look at him and go, Man, if he was really a king, he wouldn't be up on the cross. And then, if that wasn't even enough, they put him in the position of honor. Put him in the middle. Right, the middle position was a position of honor where you had people to the, the each side of you. Wanted him to be front and center. Shame him as, as the, the worst of the three. These two guys on the end, they're just robbers, but this guy, he thinks he's the king of the Jews. Shame upon shame upon shame upon shame. And they want everybody else in the audience who's witnessing this, who's going to walk by and see him think, if I follow that guy on the cross who claims to be the Messiah, who claims to be able to forgive sins, if I follow that Jesus who's being shamed and hung on the cross and crucified, that that's the same thing that's going to happen to me. They're going, you want to be shamed like that? You want to have your clothes stripped off, paraded through town and end up on a cross crucified with nails through your hands and your feet while you hang there naked? Do you, do you want that kind of shame to be brought on you and, and your family and, and everybody around? Is this the guy you want to follow? You want all that shame? Yeah, that's exactly what we're called to do, isn't it? We're called to take up our cross and, and, and follow Jesus. But here's the thing. We get to do it without shame. You know why? Because he's already taken it. He has already taken all the shame from the cross. So we don't have to endure it. 
Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Therefore, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. He took it for us. He endured it for us. So now there is no shame in calling on the one who was crucified for my sins. Because he took it away. He endured the emotional suffering of the shame of the cross. Thirdly, he bore the offense of the cross. We got physical suffering, emotional suffering. Now you can add mental suffering. And I don't know about you, but do you, do you get to this point in, in reading the story and get, they just didn't really like Jesus. <laughs> I mean, they, they just, they didn't like him. He's been scourged. He's had the thorn, uh, the crown of thorns on his head. He's been mocked. He's been shamed, right? And, and, and now they're, they're going to walk by and make fun of him in case everything else isn't enough. Verse 39, those who passed by, because remember crucifixion was supposed to be a deterrent. So those who, who walked by of, of the crucifixion, you know, highly visible location, could see Jesus. But as they walked by, it says that they, in verse 39, says they derided him. They derided him. And then, wagging their heads. When I wrote that, you know what popped into my mind? Many godly southern grandmothers. You shouldn't have done that. Anybody ever get the head wet? The, 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 am I the only one that, that, that got that? Please tell me y'all know what I'm talking about. It's like, it's not bad enough, but you sitting there just, mm-mm. All right. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what they're doing. That's what they're doing. They're, 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 they're making fun. They're jeering at him. They're calling him names, and they're so into it. I mean, it's not just like, oh, look at that, 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 that crazy guy out there. They're like, you're so crazy, <laughs> and just, just shaking their head. I mean, they're, they're, they're all in. Now, interestingly, that word translated deride is actually the word for blasphemy. And they walk by, they, they, they blaspheme Jesus. Now, we have to understand, Matthew uses the word blasphemy on purpose, as inspired by the Holy Spirit. At the same time, not translating it blasphemy is correct. Because what they are doing, they don't see it as blaspheming because they're not insulting God. For it to be blasphemous, they have to be some acknowledgement that, that that is God or God is doing something and insult God and insult what he is doing. They don't have any clue that Jesus is God in the flesh. They don't think that Jesus is doing anything related to God. So in that sense, they are not blaspheming Jesus. However, they are they absolutely are. They don't get it. They don't understand it. But we do. We understand that they are insulting God's plan, that they are insulting God in the flesh hanging on the cross. 
They're insulting him and jeering at him and making fun of him. And then they repeat a false charge against him, right? It says in verse 40, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. That's not what he said. He didn't say that. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. You notice the, the subtle differences? But that's what they're doing. Even though it's, it's jeering and they're riding, they're blaspheming Jesus. They are blaspheming God and what He is doing. Hey, you, you said that you would do this. Now do this. Now look at what again it says right there. Second part of verse 40. Tell me if this sounds familiar to you from the Gospel of Matthew. If you are the Son of God. You heard that before? Is that a phrase we have seen before in Matthew? And the answer is yes. You go back to Matthew chapter 4. Jesus in the wilderness. Satan approaches Jesus to tempt him. And what does Satan say? If you are the Son of God, turn these loaves to bread. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And here at the cross, another temptation, and it could have been uttered by Satan himself. Now, we know that it's not. All right, I'm not saying that. But the temptation is the same thing. If you are the Son of God, come down off the cross. Come down. It's blasphemy when the created tells the Creator what to do. And then the chief priests, the ones who should know better. Don't forget, these should know better. These are the people who should know better. Get in on it as well. And, and they start mocking him in verse 42. He saved others. He can't save himself. Let him come down off the cross. Come down. We will believe in him. I've got a note written in the margin of my Bible. They're still looking for signs. They're still looking for miracles. Three years of miracles ain't good enough. Walking on water is not good enough. Feeding the 5,000 is not good enough. Cursing the fig tree is not good enough. Making the lame walk, healing somebody on the Sabbath so that you wanted to stone them isn't good enough. Give me one more sign. Just, just, just one more sign. Sign. Now, we know in three days there's going to be another sign when he comes up from the tomb. And you know what? They're not going to believe then either. So is one more sign really going to help them? Absolutely not. But then the robbers get involved in it as well, right? They, they, they say the same thing. Matthew doesn't record it. Luke does. But they say the same thing. Save yourself. And after you save yourself, save us. Right? They keep coming to Jesus and saying, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself. But there's a great theological truth here. That again, the chief priest and the people who are saying can't see. And for Jesus to bring salvation to others, to you and to me, He can't save Himself. For me and you to be saved, He can't come down from the cross. They are witnessing 
not just the greatest saving act in all of history, but the only eternal saving act in history, and they can't see it. But they're looking directly at it. And for them, the sign is for Jesus to come down, thus proving that He is the Son of God, when we know that the sign is that He stayed up, thus proving He is the Son of God. They've got it backwards. He proves that He is the Son of God, who is fulfilling God's plan, not by coming down off the cross, but by staying up. And He stays up because He is bearing the penalty for our sin at the cross. He bore the penalty for sin at the cross. You can call this atoning suffering if you want a fourth category of suffering. All right, we see that he is crucified. Verse 34, Matthew and all the gospel writers just simply say he was crucified. They don't go into the great detail that we did this morning looking at it and trying to examine it. They just say, all right, he was crucified. They let the people imagine because they see it, they, they would understand but Jesus, or excuse me, but Matthew in his writing wants to focus on why he was crucified. Why, as it sees, we see in verse 50, that Jesus yielded up his spirit. And you see in those two verses the brevity in which he is crucified, in which he has died, because Matthew is drawing our attention to the fact that through the crucifixion and the death of Jesus, he dealt with our sins. That's what we're supposed to see. That's what Matthew wants everybody to see, that we stand condemned under God's law. We can't obey it perfectly, and the penalty of which is death. And that's what would happen to everyone unless God acts, unless God does something. And His plan, His appointed plan, was for Jesus Christ to be our substitute and our sacrifice. Right? This, th- why is Jesus crucified during the Passover? Would his death on the cross six months later been just as efficacious as it is today? Had it been not been near Passover? Would it? Absolutely. But why the Passover? I mean, God is putting the sign there for everybody to see that Jesus is the final and the ultimate Passover lamb. That Jesus' death on the cross was the perfect sacrifice. And you can't look at it any other way. Just a few verses with no references. The references are in the study guide. This is my blood of the covenant poured out for many, the forgiveness of sins. He gave his life a ransom for many. We have been justified by His blood, making peace through His blood shed on the cross. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He was our Passover lamb. And you go back to Exodus 12 and you see exactly what the Passover lamb was for. And I want to encourage you to go back and read Exodus 12, but just very briefly, the final plague is about to come down on the Egyptians. And in this final plague, God is going to pour out His wrath on the Egyptians, the death of the firstborn. But you know what is interesting about the tenth plague? It's the only plague that will also afflict, afflict, uh, yeah, okay, afflict the Israelites. 
The first nine, God protects them from it, right? They're in Goshen. All the other plagues happen around them. But this one, the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, Israel is not automatically exempted. Why? Because they are sinners too. They have sin that needs to be dealt with. We read later that some of them were worshiping the false gods. They are sinners. And God has to deal with their sins. He can't focus on the Egyptian sins and not on the Israelite sins. But he says to Israel, he says, look, this last plague that, that's coming, I'm going to tell you how to escape it. And he tells the people to slaughter a lamb, place the blood on the doorpost and the lentils, which, by the way, forms a cross. And he says, when the angel of death sees the blood, the angel of death will pass over the house. So the Passover lamb became the substitute and the sacrifice for the firstborn. And God told them, every year, do this. This is going to be a continual sacrifice. Which is why Jesus tells the disciples, go prepare for the Passover. Every year, a lamb became their substitute and the sacrifice for their sins. And it happened every year because the blood of lambs and goats cannot permanently take away and give forgiveness of sins. But God had a plan. And God's plan was Jesus to be the ultimate and final Passover lamb, God in the flesh, taking on all our sins, right? Jesus, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Right? That's what happened with the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb became our sin. And we need to remember that sacrifices were holy to God. Jesus didn't sin. He didn't become a sinner. But Jesus allows our sin to be transferred to Him to become our substitute so that then Jesus can be the holy sacrifice to God so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? He bore all our sin. I'm not going to ask you to make a list. How many pages of a book would your sin fill up? All right? All right. How about just if you bullet pointed it, how many pages? If you just outlined it under broad headings, how many pages? Every last one of those sins Jesus bore so that in Him being the holy sacrifice to God, you would become the righteousness of God. He became sin for us so that we could be saved. That's why He didn't come down off the cross. That's why He couldn't come down off the cross. And we are made the righteousness of God when, and we're going to sing it in a minute, we are washed in the blood. You see, that's really important because the blood has to be applied. When you go back to Exodus 12 and you looked, it wasn't the taking of the lamb. It wasn't the slaughtering of the lamb. It wasn't the preparation of the lamb. It wasn't preparation of the Passover dinner. Do you know what saved Israel? When the blood was what? Applied to the doorpost. And the same stands true today. You can know about Jesus. You can read about Him. You can think He's a great teacher. You can admire Him for all that He has done. But none of that will save you. 
The only way that we are saved, the only way people who don't know Christ are saved is by faith when the blood of the perfect Passover lamb, which was shed on the cross for our sins, is applied to the heart. And Jesus stayed on the cross so that His blood and the new covenant could be applied to us so that we would have forgiveness of sins. The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbankmbc.com. If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.